0: In this episode, we spoke with Matt Langioni, a partner at the Boston Consulting Group, where he specializes in bringing research-driven, high-potential deep tech to the market. Matt is a leading global expert on the industrial applications of quantum computing, and he advises Fortune 500 companies on how to integrate quantum computing into their companies. So quantum computing it gets a really bad reputation for being super complicated and hard to understand. But once you break down this big topic of quantum computing, anyone can actually understand it. So that is exactly what we do in this episode. We start by explaining quantum computing to a five-year-old and we progress all the ways to the laws of quantum physics, like quantum tunneling, entanglement, and superposition. We talk about making qubits, designing quantum circuits, how to overcome decoherence, and the incredible applications and potential of quantum computing for the future. Get ready to talk everything quantum. Thank you so much, Matt, for being here. We are so excited to talk to you today. I'm excited. Okay, so can you start us off by explaining what quantum computing is, but like to a five-year-old so they can understand that?
1: Well, this is good. So I don't have a five-year-old. I've got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old. But let's just suppose I'm in a room with the four and the six-year-old. And I've got to make this thing land with both of them. Here, here's, how, here, here's how I do it. So computers are incredibly powerful. They allow us to do so many things and to do those things very, very fast. But underneath it all, they're just calculators, really doing simple math. And every year... For the last 70 years, they've gotten faster and faster at that math while getting smaller and smaller. But now they can't get much smaller. And there are a few really important problems left that even the best computers today can't solve. And they're big important problems that'll help us find drugs to treat diseases and materials to help us pollute less. Quantum computers are like the computers we have today, but they work differently. They're built with different ultra small materials and they calculate things using a different kind of math than what you learn in school. So it'll be very difficult to build, but if we succeed in building them, we'll be able to understand the secrets of nature so much better than we do today. And we'll be able to use those secrets to solve some of our biggest problems. So that that's for the four and the six year old. But now if I might just, I think that might land it you know, with a five year old, but suppose like my eight year old entered the room <laughs> and suppose he's a genius. Can I, can I dress things up and try it on him?
0: Yes,
1: please. (laughs) All right. All right. So, this is how I would typically explain it, uh, because I am not in the business of explaining it to five year olds. So, when we think about computers today, we rarely think about their limitations. So, you know, why would we? Our headlines are, after all, full of cautionary rhetoric about the dangers of limitless technological overreach, machine surveillance, or even AI led job displacement. But major limitations do exist. So the rapid pace of progress in computing over the last half century, which is kind of driven year by year by this almost metronomic advance of Moore's law, it tends to obscure the fact that there are many, many problems that today's computers can't solve. And some of these problems simply await the next generation of semiconductors rounding the bend on the assembly line. But others are what's called classically intractable. And that means that they'll remain beyond the reach of classical computers forever. And these aren't idle or wonkish things. These are problems that put great constraints on human progress and business value. I think the question here is, what if a technology came along that could lift those constraints? What if, for example, we could design panels that made solar energy more efficient than gas? What if we could develop drugs for untreatable diseases? What if we could perform whole market simulations, uh, risk simulations that enabled banks to reduce cash reserves and lend more freely to entrepreneurs and businesses? These are some of the things that I think quantum computing can help us tackle. But what is quantum computing? Back to the question. It's a game-changing technology paradigm that weds, in my mind, the most mystifying subject in all the sciences, quantum mechanics, with the most impactful force in business and society today, which is computing. Now, while classical computers are built on bits or tiny transistors that exist in one state at a time, quantum computers are built on qubits that thanks to several characteristics of quantum mechanics, afford them the ability to explore many states at once. This makes them exponentially faster when it comes to solving maze-like simulation and optimization problems. I'll get to that in a minute. Now, these quantum mechanical characteristics have names that you may have heard, superposition, entanglement, interference. I'm happy to explain those if we want to get into them. And by the look of it, I think that you two do. Um, uh, But the most important thing to know is that taken together, they enable a departure from two major constraints of classical semiconductor computing. So classical computers, they operate deterministically. Everything is either on or off, yes or no, with no in-between. They also operate serially. They can only do one thing at a time. Now, they do it so fast, they trick us into thinking that they're parallel processing, but really they're not. Now, by contrast, quantum computers operate probabilistically, and most importantly, they operate simultaneously through a property I like to call group action that allows them to explore many possibilities at once. Now to illustrate how a group action works, imagine a computer is trying to solve a maze. This is my favorite metaphor yeah. for, uh, for quantum computing. The classical computer would exhaust every potential path in a sequence. If it came across a roadblock on the first path, it'd rule that out, revert to its starting position, and try the next logical path, and so on and so forth until it found a solution. However, a quantum computer can model multiple states at once and thus is able to operate in parallel, testing every single path at once. So the quantum computer, in effect, is able to solve the maze with only a single try. And that's really the critical difference. One is doing one thing after another in sequence, and the other is sort of doing it all at once.
0: Yeah. Oh, and I think why I'm so excited about quantum computing is because of that. As you said, you know, it can quantum computers, they can do things simultaneously. And that's kind of like what of one of the biggest kind of drawbacks right now of classical computers. Yeah. Now you mentioned quantum entanglement and tunneling and stuff. So if that's okay with you, maybe do you want to choose one and we can dive deeper into that and kind of break it down?
1: Absolutely. I think the best way to think about this is, is by describing superposition and entanglement. And the other one that people want um, me to describe typically is interference. So maybe we'll get to that, but, but superposition and entanglement now, these are the, uh, the critical pieces that enable the exponential speed up. So we talked about how bits are either in a state of zero or one. By contrast, what makes qubits powerful is the fact that they can exist in a state of zero and one sort of simultaneously with something called a probability amplitude. Think about a spinning coin, which is neither heads nor tails, but some proportion of both at once, right? This is superposition. That's one way to describe superposition. So, you know, if you think about it in quantum physics, the characteristics, position, speed, et cetera, of one particle is in an undetermined state. So the particle has a probability to be in position A, which is like you could say heads and a probability to be in a position B. And the real benefit here is information density. So by superposing, you know, n qubits, we obtain two to the n simultaneous configurations of information that makes things really dense. Now, the next property is entanglement. And entanglement describes the inherently parallel nature of quantum materials. So, and there there are just some sort of amazing things here, but basically entanglement enables quantum objects to be in a similar quantum state without being strictly identical, for instance, in their spatial localization. So this means that strange as it may seem, a particle may have an instantaneous effect on another particle, even if they're, you know, many kilometers away from each other. And by the way, one challenge in quantum computing is that you know particles in space are actually interfering with quantum computers yeah. on earth, um, by the way. So there's like downsides of entanglement, but the consequence of entanglement is that a measurement made on one qubit will have an immediate effect on another entangled qubit. And the benefit here is that group action. So while conventional computers have bits that are independent from each other, entanglement allows qubits to join forces that really exponentiates their information density.
0: Now, the key there is like qubits, right? Like everything that does the classical bits can do that. And qubits is kind of, yeah, like that's the changing factor. So I think a lot of people, including myself, it's like, okay, well, like how do you make actual qubits that can have these properties, like entanglement and superposition? Like how do you make a qubit to have these different kind of like properties? And what are qubits made
1: out of? <laughs> yeah, well, This is a really good question. So what are qubits made out of is like one of the big unsolved uh, problems of the field, which is really surprising because imagine any other industry in which you were saying, look, I've got this thing that's almost ready yet, but I don't know what to make it out of. <laughs> um, yes. And so that's more or less the state of quantum computing. Now, you know, in fairness, there are a lot of really important competing, what we call substrates, which is basically what is the physical implementation of the qubit. The one that's probably most popular, this is the one that IBM and Google have, is called a superconducting qubit. Typically, you know, it's a boson and it basically is formed by superpositions of currents that are simultaneously flowing in opposite directions around a superconductor. That's kind of like one implementation of, you know, of quantum computing. The other one um, is called trapped ions. And this is one in which, of course, instead of a boson, you're using an ion and a fermion, say, And qubits are housed here in arrays of ions that are trapped in electric fields while their quantum states are controlled by lasers. That's like another way to affect these quantum properties in a trapped ion implementation. The third one is photonics. And the most, by the way, the trapped ion, the representative players there are, well, what used to be Honeywell. Now they've merged with another company called uh, Cambridge Quantum. And that's called, you know, the joint entity is Quantinuum. it's called. That's one. And then there's another one called Ion-Q. So whereas superconducting was sort of I- IBM and Google and Rigetti, trapped ion is Ion-Q and continuum. And then the third one is this is sort of an order of, I don't know, be, you know, popularity or engineering sophistication over the years. So each of these have an important claim to being potentially the first to quantum supremacy is photonics. And this is, you know, qubits, that are encoded in the quantum states of photons that are moving along circuits in silicon chips. And so, so basically you think about it like the three basic substrates are sort of bosons or superconductors, fermions or trapped ions or photons. One of the advantages of photons, and this is by the way, two, two important companies here. One's called Quantum, and the other's called Xanadu. And oh, cool. um, yeah, and you, you may have heard of these. And, and these are, an interesting thing here is that you can actually, because they're moving along circuits and silicon chips, you can leverage all of the research that's happened over the last 60, 70 years in silicon in order to scale these, right? So, you know, if you think about that magic number of qubits being about a million qubits, photonics is one way. And, you know, certainly the claim of uh, folks like Cyquantum is that they can get there first because they can leverage the trillion dollars and 70 years of R&D that's already gone into silicon.
0: And out of all the different, like which ones do you think is the best or the like the most efficient kind of type of qubits for quantum computers?
1: Out of like the ones that you mentioned. It is, a, it is a complicated question. My sense is if anyone knew the answer to that, a lot of funding would fall out of the other <laughs> ones, right? And so um, all of these that I've mentioned, and there are more, they are quantum dots and cold atoms. There are even a company called EeroQ that has an entirely different substrate. So there are a number of different substrates, at least five or six that are quite popular. It's very hard to say with any certainty. And, so, and, and some of them have properties- they're best on the one dimension and the worst on the other dimension, et cetera. When I think about these, I think about effectively, I guess the short answer to your question is that superconducting qubits are probably the most advanced from an engineering perspective. People have been working on them in a concerted fashion the longest. And there were major research institutes, most notably Yale, really early on that kind of developed You know, an important group of scientists who've now gone out into industry and have, you know, developed some really important, you know, engineering around how to connect these things, how to tune them. And a lot of important kind of like normal science has gone on in superconducting. Now, you know, the pure potential, like theoretical scientific potential of things like ions and photons maybe equal or even better, uh, right, than, than superconducting. But superconducting, I think, has the advantage of like a strong scientific community that's had an opportunity to mature a little bit more around these.
2: Got it. And I know that there's different kinds of quantum computing, you know, like analog quantum, if I'm saying that right. Can you kind of explain those types of quantum computing a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, really, there are kind of two basic types of quantum computers, there's sort of the analog approach, and then there's the logical or gate-based approach. Now, the analog approach is effectively best represented by D-Wave. It's also called annealing, often, Ciara. And then the other, the the sort of logic or gate-based are called universal quantum computers. The annealing ones are not universal because they're based on a bit of a different principle, and they can't run all of the quantum algorithms for example the you know shor's algorithm which is critical in breaking quantum cryptography instead they run a kind of narrow set of optimization problems and they test basically simultaneously a large number of parameters and find the the minimum of the function so basically they do optimization they also don't require uh, you know, and we can talk about this a little bit later, error correction in quite the same way as logic or gate-based computers do universal logical gate-based is sort of one category annealing and analog or another. And so they actually have the advantage of being sort of ready sooner in some ways, but also more limited in the scope of problems that they can tackle.
0: And I know like universal quantum computers, right? They're kind of like the be all end all, right? Like everybody talks about, oh, if we could build a, like a functioning, like universal quantum computer, then like, we'll kind of be good to go. So like, what would it take to build like a universal quantum computer that has enough qubits and that, yeah, can just like function in the right way so that we have like a functioning one?
1: So, you know, while quantum computers benefit from the advantages of quantum properties, these same properties introduce some serious limitations. And the first and the most often discussed is that they're very fragile.
0: Yeah, decoherence.
1: So yeah, exactly. Their quantumness decoheres rapidly, which makes them kind of error out. Now, all computers error out. In classical computing, a combination of you know redundancy and fancy math called error correction makes it so that we don't even notice when it's happening on our laptops or our phones, right? But because quantum states... They can't be cloned. There's something called the non-cloning theorem, which actually incidentally makes quantum materials also particularly valuable in encryption, right? Um, Because you can always tell if someone has sort of tapped the phone line as it were in quantum, because the whole thing would decohere the minute that someone does. So because they can't be cloned, the error correction that we use for conventional computers, it just won't work on quantum computers. So we'll need even fancier math for quantum error correction. So there are a number of other technical challenges that are related to memory. So what's called QRAM, not unlike random access in conventional computers, to intermediate readouts. Like you kind of can't solve part of a problem and and save it and wait for it to happen later in quantum, right? So there, there are those kinds of problems. But I think the thing to focus on is that we need to create two things. One, physical qubits that are more robust to what's called noise. In other words, more robust to interference from outside the system. And we need to create error correction schemes. And sorry, the the physical qubits is almost, it's a matter of material science. And the second thing is we need to create error correction schemes that are clever enough to prevent the system from collapsing before we can fully complete the calculations that we need to make. And this is a matter of math. So there's material science on the physical qubits. And then there's actually sort of fundamental math on error correction that needs to happen. And that's the major, major challenge that just about everybody in the field is working on in one way or another.
0: Yeah, that's like the, like, that's what it's holding quantum computers
1: back, right? And I think the thing that you'll hear a lot of terms, so I may just want to lay those out. When you hear about fault tolerant quantum computing, sort of the holy grail, that means that the system has been error corrected. It's mm -hmm. tolerant. To, to fault. Now, there will always be faults, right? But so tolerance in, indicates a threshold. It's not fault-free, but fault-tolerant computing is, is, is sort of the holy grail. And then we at BCG use a, use the term full-scale fault tolerance just to suggest that, that the machine needs to be at a su- sufficient scale in order to calculate some of these complex problems that have already been scoped, like Shor's algorithm. And the reason that that's important is because one problem for some of the substrates, like trapped ions, is how do you actually, like stitch these machines together? How do you get to a distributed model of compute in the way that we have it in, you know, in the cloud? And that's more difficult for some of these substrates than others. But for all of them, it's an important matter of like, how do you actually, you know, parallelize these quantum computers, parallelize cloud computing?
0: How long do you think it will kind of like take until we have like a full scale, like fault tolerance um, quantum computer, as you mentioned?
1: It's a really good question. So let me take it in a little bit part, you know, because full-scale and fault-tolerant are are slightly different. So my sense is that the earliest estimates of fault-tolerant quantum computing are in the 2025 to 2026 range. Google says that it'll be around 2029, that they'll have a fault tolerance. PsyQuantum thinks that it could happen as early as 2026. IBM is sort of in that range as well, though they've been less public about those claims. And so uh, somewhere in the 2026 to 2030 range is probably a a guess that incorporates the kind of public statements of the major providers. Now, full scale is a little bit different. And I think full scale will follow, you know, in the 2030 and beyond sort of range. I think that that's a good guess for that because it'll require, I mean, qubits are hard to fabricate. It's like you know, getting to uh, to scale that, that that's one thing. Qubits are hard to fabricate, and then as I mentioned, machines are hard to pair together. You have to come up with a scheme that allows you know entanglement to uh, obtain work to their advantage. Yeah, across multiple systems. So there are ways that folks know how to do that, actually leveraging photonics right now. But it's a, it's it's a serious engineering problem.
2: And can we get a little bit into exactly? Hmm the hardware behind um, making a quantum computer, like the different parts, like the shell, the brain, et cetera.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. It's funny because everybody talks about these deep substrates, but of course there's a lot more to it as well, right? And in fact, one of the interesting things about quantum computing is that the image that everybody has in their head is this giant, you know, chandelier. Um, yeah,
0: the gold and the, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. everything down, yes.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. But in fact... That is really, that, that is really actually just the refrigeration unit. Um, that's a cryogenic, you know, machine that keeps the, the, the chip, especially in superconducting implementations that require the chip to be effectively as cold as outer space. I think it's something like four Kelvin or something like that. Yeah. So there's a lot, I mean, I, I guess a couple things, one, I mean, basically there's a lot around the cryogenics, but let me just give a few things. Basically, you have kind of like the core quantum processing unit. And within that quantum processing unit, you know, you have analog control signals, analog readout signals, analog processing that connect to digital control signals and digital readout signals. And then a kind of digital processing unit. Now, around that, there's a classical processor, too. This is an important thing because the classical processor, and this is like, you know, you know, conventional computing will do things like calibrate and tune the quantum processor. So like when people say, well, what about quantum versus classical? It's like the future is, is inherently hybrid. There's no quantum so, computer that can operate without a classical computer around it.
0: Oh, so like does it have both qubits and bits inside of it? Or is it just like you have a quantum computer and then you have like a classical computer beside it and like just helps it out?
1: It, it's a little bit more conceptually like beside it. To be honest, because like the quantum processing unit itself won't have bits in it, right? It'll just have qubits. Cubits, um, but wrapped around it, it'll have effectively a tuner that helps calibrate and tune the qubits that are in the quantum processing unit. And then, and so, and, and so there's that part. And then, of course, we can, then within that, there's the cryogenics, right? And the cryogenics are pretty interesting in and of themselves, but effectively, that's the gigantic chandelier that keeps things incredibly cold. There's also microwave pulses, and this is like, you know, you, we're getting into, there are different substrates, right, that have different functionalities, but basically there are microwave pulses that help effectively program the computer, right, that effectively set the qubits in motion in the right ways. By the way, um, so you have the dilution refrigerator, within that you have the quantum processor, of course you have the classical component of that, and then you have the the pulse control. And these are like microwave lines, that are, uh, you know, attenuation is applied at each stage in order to protect the qubits from like thermal noise during the process of sending control and reading out the signals. But yeah, it's a, it is right now like a almost space gadget that you would imagine in like a back to the future uh, film or something like that. But the core of it is that inside this gigantic refrigerator, you have quantum processor, you have a classical control module, and you have microwave signals.
2: And when we do get to like this stage where we have a fully developed quantum computer, what role do you think it'll play in industries like material science and like artificial intelligence and cryptography and like medicine and stuff like that? What do you think the role it would play
1: in well, those areas? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked, because to be honest, that, that actually is sort of where my area of expertise kind of starts right <laughs> I mean uh, I'm not, I'm not actually I'm not a physicist I'm, I'm uh, you know interested in this stuff but really my role is in actually sort of translating what the specific capabilities of the computer are to the to the real problems in the business and in you know in the, in the social world that quantum computers can kind of uniquely address and it turns out I had talked about these kind of maze like you know uh, problems that quantum computing lends itself to. It's kind of an interesting notion about quantum computing that I would just want to mention. I had talked a little bit about how quantum computers will never replace classical computers, not just because classical computers exist to help quantum computers work, but also because classical computers will always be better than quantum computers at yeah. simple things and more efficient. I mean, like your iPhone will always have a need for classical computing, and I think we'll always be powered by that. There's really like one thing that quantum computers do better than classical computers and that thing is sparse matrix math, computates sparse matrices, large sparse matrices. It just so happens that sparse matrix math is extremely important for a number of really deep industrial problems, like simulation, like optimization, like machine learning and cryptography. And then once you look at those four things, it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of use cases and industries that require simulation, take simulation, you have like drug discovery, you have computational fluid dynamics for aerospace, you have catalyst design for, you know, uh, for chemistry, you have solar conversion for energy, all these sorts of things. And even, even you know, financial markets can be simulated. But what's interesting is that a derivative, uh, all of this value, and we think that there'll be, you know, a half a trillion to a trillion dollars in value created annually by quantum computers. Wow. All of it is a derivative of this one little function that classical computers don't do very well. But let's let, let's make it real for a second. So if you think about a problem that's just like immeasurably valuable for business and society, and we let's just stick to climate. And one of the hallmark problems in climate science is fertilizer production. And the way it's produced today is through this thing called the Haber-Bosch process in which nitrogen and hydrogen are fused to make ammonia, which is the key ingredient. Now the process works, but only at an enormous cost for companies who spend, you know, hundred to $300 billion a year on fertilizer synthesis and for the environment. So fertilizer synthesis alone accounts for three to 5% of the world's natural gas, 1% of the world's energy expenditure, which is enormous. Right? So the question is, all right, well, why have scientists failed to develop a more efficient process? The reason is, and this is one of the wild things about quantum computing. The reason is that in order to do so, they, they, they have to simulate the molecular interactions of the key catalyst, which is nitrogenase, with fine grain accuracy. The problem is, simulating nitrogenase would take 820,000 years on the most powerful wow. classical computer available today. Wow. With a full scale quantum computer, in less than 24 hours. But one of the wild things about this is quantum computing, like there are a lot of problems that exist out there, well scoped problems to be solved. We just don't have the compute power to do it. Like we know how to do it. We just don't have the compute power. I think with most technologies, it's not the case that there are problems just sitting out there waiting to be solved. Like, you know, it's as though we have a million great applications for quantum computing, but we just don't have the computer yet. Yeah. Now, there's a lot more to it than that. But, but let me just say a couple other things. So... It's not just around, you know, nitrogenase and, and like these deep scientific problems like that. But think about, you know, matters that are, are really, really practical. And, and if you want to even take like almost a social impact lens, let me offer two examples. So one of the biggest problems in climate change, uh, in climate change is, is making persuasive political arguments because the simulations of the ecosystem are notoriously unreliable. So it's challenging to kind of isolate and say anything definitive about the climate impact Of a particular human activity or a policy change, right? Because they're subject to manipulation and assumptions. And let me tell you a little bit about why. So the reason is that limitations in computational power require that the earth be cut into small boxes or grid cells. And then the, the classical computer can model only one of them at a time. And then the modeler makes assumptions about how something that happens in one box impacts what will happen in another box, and so on across the globe, right? And as you can imagine, you know, the, the those assumptions can be tested and become kind of politicized and are challenging. Now, with a quantum computer, you could run a whole climate simulation, controlling for all factors through time and space. You could take account of the climate impact of just about every human activity. And that knowledge would be incomparably valuable, not just to scientists, but to lawmakers, activists, and citizens. And I think it would be kind of a first touchstone on the path to regulation and and behavior change. That's a real hope that I have, uh, that quantum computers will be leveraged in climate modeling. Because climate modeling uh, is just something that's extremely difficult to do persuasively with current computational power.
0: Yeah. And how do you think we should, like, how can we, like, get ready for these big changes, you know? Because I think you mentioned, like, 2026, did you say, is kind of like when they're aiming to have, you know, full-scale kind of, like, quantum computers that can do all these amazing things. So how can we get ready for this?
1: Yeah. So I think that there are really three fairly simple things, simple to say, kind of hard to do things that (laughs) that, that need to happen. One is I think we need to invest in fundamental research. In November of 2018, the US invested, you know, 1.4 billion for research into quantum technologies, and it's a good start, but it's really going to have to grow over time. And it looks like we're going in the right direction. A good chunk of money was earmarked by Biden in his infrastructure bill. Hopefully, more is on the way. But my suspicion is that, and this is just a model, I think that we need thirty-three billion dollars overall globally to really propel quantum computing into the next into the next phase. And I think we're, we're getting there, right? So I think you know China has eleven billion dollars invested. Germany's got you know 2.4, USA 2.2, France is right after that, and the UK. I think that you know private investments are now close to three billion dollars, you know, in private equity, et cetera. There's a gap though, and I think corporates will probably need to invest eight billion dollars or more in the next few years. I think that they're going to do it because really, like progress is coming fast and furious from companies like IBM. So I think they're going to do it, but I do think that we're going to need you know, a good chunk of money in order to really, in order to really bring a a quantum computer into being. Now, so that's one thing, investing in fundamental research. Second thing, I think we have to make quantum mechanics a cornerstone of our education system. So right now it's often relegated to the kind of unexplored later chapters of the high school physics textbook. And yet the principles of quantum mechanics only become more counterintuitive the more one learns about the standard model of physics. So the result is that, you know, companies wishing to experiment in quantum computers are competing over a very small qualified talent pool. And I think it's gonna uh, slow innovation at some point if it hasn't already. So I think that really inculcating quantum mechanics early, I mean, my kids already have a basic <laughs> grasp of quantum mechanics. Oh uh, my you know, they're limited by their instructor, but but I, I think it's almost never too early, right? Because I don't think that it's the case that you need to learn physics, then quantum physics. Like that's, I actually think you should, maybe it's the other way around, to be honest.
0: Right. Because that um, physics is going to seem so easy. You're just going to like get a hundred million <laughs> physics exams. <laughs> there you go.
1: There you go. Uh, So then the third thing. So the first thing was fundamental research investment. The second thing is education. And the third thing, I think we really need cooperation through a global quantum computing community. So thus far, you know, academic corporate relations in the U.S., in Europe and in China, importantly, have been marked by a healthy kind of open flow of communication. And I think that that's really, really critical because if you think about it, the Chinese have invested $11 billion in quantum technologies The rest of the world kind of combined from a government perspective is at around the same, 11.5 billion or so. So, you know, if China were to wall off its findings, basically the global pool of uh, public research would be cut in half. So far that hasn't happened. It's actually been really encouraging. And China has, has really accelerated with two important quantum supremacy experiments. And so far things have been open. But I think we need to make sure that that situation obtains, even in an environment where quantum computers become powerful enough to start to, to, to get close to that cryptographic threshold. And that, that's something that I'll be keeping an eye out for. So investment, education, cooperation, you know, against the wonders of quantum mechanics, this may seem a banal trio of concepts, but I think if we're going to race toward a new age of kind of magic and supercomputing, these will be the the, the real rally flags that we should look for along the way
2: totally agree and I really I really want to get a little deeper into your second point about education with it so do you do you think there's a lot of resources out there to learn about quantum and just generally become knowledgeable about it even like whether you're like a young younger person or an adult or just anybody curious about it do you think there are enough resources and if not how can we create these resources for people to actually learn more about it and get general like knowledge of the the field
1: so I think we're getting there I think we're getting there, but but we're not there yet to your point, Ciara. So there are a few really good things. One thing, one resource, and this is like self-education resources, I think are getting pretty good. Um, there's two that I would point to very specifically. One is all of the documentation that IBM has put online on quit on KizKit, which is their software development kit. Is is pretty darn good. They've been very thoughtful about it. I know they also have a certification program. I haven't, you know, kind of run through it myself personally, but but my sense is that I have been introduced to it, and it seems to me Penny
0: Lane, I think as well. I've heard is a good one. I think yes, Penny, Penny, Lane.
1: Penny Lane. Yeah, yeah, t- totally. Um, those are those are two really good ones, and then I would also just um, say that. MIT, I know, has a kind of like, you know, self-guided course on quantum. I believe they developed it with IBM, but that's a really strong program. So I think that that from the perspective of kind of like self-education, I think that that's really good. From the perspective of like fundamental physics, my feeling quantum mechanics, my feeling is that that is really a school and like university mandate, that's pretty hard to teach yourself. I mean, incidentally, a lot of like the best were kind of autodidacts over the years, but these are kind of like brilliant mathematicians, right? And so like Schrodinger, right? Yeah. And so I think that I think that that's actually kind of the duty and the mandate that I would say should come from the government. Like there should be earmarked funds for postdocs and, and for others uh, in order to really inculcate the, the principles of quantum mechanics at an early age, I think that, that that's really important. And then university programs, I think, are just really filling up, like courses are really filling up in college on these topics. So we know that demand's there and we know that the need is there. And what really needs to bridge the gap is, um, is a real commitment, I think, at the government level and then at the uh, university level um, to prioritizing it.
2: Awesome. Well, I just want to thank you, Matt, for coming on here and giving us so much insight and so much knowledge about quantum, like the physics and mechanics behind it, the implementations and how we can prepare for it. So I want to thank you so much. And is there any last thing you kind of want to say before we end off?
1: There is one last thing, uh, two last things. First, I'd like to thank you both real fans of the podcast. I love the uh, the initiative that you have, and I've loved the episode I've, I've tuned into so far. The second thing I would want to say is that my perspective on quantum computing at this stage is that, is that there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for even non-specialists to, to really make an important contribution. And the reason I think that is because it's such a nascent technology and and yet it's growing so fast and it's so industrially important that I think right now the needs uh, outstrip the kind of like, you know, talent supply. So my point is, Don't think that just because you're, you know, 30 years old and you've uh, had, you know, a job as a computer programmer for a while that you can't like make a shift and focus on quantum computing. You certainly can. To my point, there are all these resources out there. And candidly, you know, if you're in business and you're not someone who's technical and you want to, you know, go into the business of quantum computing, it's actually at such an early stage that I actually think that there's a real opportunity to make an important contribution to the field even in the absence of like a deep technical grounding in 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 physics. And so uh, I would just say be undaunted. It's if it's something that you're passionate about, it's certainly something that you can learn. Uh, I would just say, you know, I have an English PhD. I've <laughs> um, studied so a bit of neuroscience, but no formal training whatsoever. And it's certainly, you know, an important part of my career now. So so I would just be, I would end on a word of encouragement for those who are who are really early in a stage of learning about the technology.
0: All uh-huh. right. Thank you so much. I think a lot of people, yeah, they think that they have to be, you know, physicists or you know, know all about quantum mechanics just to do it. But it's it's very encouraging, you know, to think that, you know, anybody can, you know. So
1: yeah. Indeed.
0: Indeed. Okay. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you both.